0: Today's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 13. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem, The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Well, good morning, Exilic Church, and Happy New Year. My name is Jay Harvey. I'm an assistant pastor here at Exilic and scholar in residence. I'm also the executive director and assistant professor of pastoral theology at Reformed Theological Seminary here in New York. That'll be the hardest thing I say the whole message. This sermon series is one that we do every year uh, at the beginning of the year on the name of our church, which is quite distinct. Exilic. An exile is someone who is not at home. And therefore, an exile is someone who is not yet fully complete. Or satisfied. This idea of being an exile is both sobering and comforting to us at the beginning of a new year. I hope you have great plans in 2020. But thinking of yourself as an exile is sobering because it reminds you that no matter how successful you are in achieving your goals in 2020, you will not be fully satisfied it's sobering but it's also comforting it's comforting because if you fail or experience loss or suffer in 2020 you know it is not the end for you for this world is not your final resting place it's a wonderful way to begin this year to think of ourselves as exiles or as my daughter coined I'm told a new term for our church exilicans (laughs) I want to begin with the words of Jesus Jesus would have us to begin with you hearing these words from him he says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light over the break we visited the metropolitan museum of art and there's a wonderful exhibit from ancient egypt and in that exhibit excuse me this was from ancient assyria and in that exhibit There was an ancient sculpture, a metal sculpture, of oxen yoked together pulling a cart. And this yoke was a big wooden beam that held the oxen and kept them in tandem. Jesus is inviting you to begin your year yoked together with him to learn from him. And he assures you it will be a joyful ride, that he's gentle that he's lowly, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, Jesus' yoke is easy and Jesus' burden is light because Jesus needs nothing from you. He only wants to know you. He provides everything for you and takes nothing from you. So he invites us to begin this year yoked together in union with him. And I want to begin by learning from Jesus what it means to be an exile. Jesus said after his resurrection that all the scripture, the law, the prophets, and the writings testify to him. As we learn from Jesus this morning, we go back to the year 597 before his birth. This was the year when the exile began and the people of God, when they were exiled to Babylon. It happened in three stages. It begins in 597, which is the setting of this particular passage. This passage is the background from which the New Testament uses the word exile to describe the people of God in Jesus Christ. So it's an appropriate place for us to come to find an outline of the exilic life. As we look at this passage, we see three things that characterize the exilic life. Confidence in God's plan, investment for multiplication, and seeking the welfare of the city. Confidence, investment, And seeking welfare. The passage concludes with the Lord's assurance to these exiles that He is for them and not against them. You look in your program, you see in verse 13, excuse me, verse 11, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you plans for welfare and not for evil. These are two complete opposites. This word for welfare is the word shalom, which is in our modern vocabulary today. It's a word for which my favorite shorthand translation is wholeness, spiritual, physical, mental, social, wholeness. It's a rich, solid, healthy wholeness. The Lord tells these exiles who are in exile because of their unfaithfulness to Him that He is for them and not against them. Specifically, He is for their wholeness. The opposite of wholeness is what? Fragmentation, an unraveling, a disintegration, a chaos, a pain. Some of you have been in situations, or you may be in one now, when, where you feel like you're unraveling, your plans are unraveling, your relationships are unraveling, your life is chaotic, you're experiencing pain, and it's in these very moments where you wonder, is God for me, or is he against me? as we come to the Lord's table this morning the Lord would have you to know in Jesus Christ he is completely for you and you can draw near to him in the midst of the unraveling and the loss and the pain that you're experiencing now or may experience in 2020 and what you will find is nothing short of miraculous and it's this that the very unraveling or what feels like a disintegration of wholeness is in the hands of God, a means of drawing closer to him and actually becoming more whole in the end after experiencing his love, his grace, and his restoration in a more powerful way. These exiles were here before the Lord Jesus Christ came. They are the people of God waiting for the Messiah who will save them. We stand on the other side of that event. We are the people of God looking in faith to the Messiah who has saved us. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome. He put the same question to them. If God is for us, who can be Against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? And this all things isn't a pie in the sky or a harp in the cloud one day in the future. It is a new creation. Jesus came to bring you into a new creation, a creation that is happening now in him where he gives you peace and assurance of God's love and a hope for the future and a creation that will be brought to full completion when heaven and earth join together and all things are made new. That is your future. And that is what you can be confident in in this new year. So There's a confidence that is characteristic of the exilic life because we know we are not yet finally home. We experience God in amazing ways now, but there is yet more to come, and we can be sure that he is for us. But this confidence that our future is secure does not lead to a resignation or a passivity in this life. Karl Marx famously said, religion is the opiate of the masses. That quote is often taken out of context. Marx was not criticizing the masses. In his day, as in ours, opium was a powerful pain reliever. What he was saying was religion was a type of antidote to the suffering that was taking place with industrialized workers who were not being cared for. And indeed, this gospel hope is an antidote to pain that is real. But it's not the type of antidote that leaves you to be passive. What we see with these exiles is that they were called to invest for multiplication. They were called, you see in verse 9... Verse 5, to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and eat produce, to take wives and have sons and daughters. The end of verse 6, they were called to multiply in this land, not to decrease. God intended for his people to be a blessing to all the nations. It would have been easy for these exiles to think we're here in this foreign land which is lording their authority over us for 70 years. We'll just wait it out. And the Lord tells them, no, fulfill your mission as my people. And he calls them to invest deeply in the family because in this day of God's people, it's the primary way the people of God were going to multiply. In the New Testament church, The family remains a primary way that disciples are made and the people of God multiply, but in addition to the family, we see the church spoken of as another kind of family, the family of God. And you can enter into this family of God now not by birth, but by faith in Jesus Christ, born not of flesh and blood or nor of the will of a husband, but born of God. So that we are brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, a real spiritual family. And as those who are in exile, waiting for God to finish his work in us and in the world, we too are called to invest deeply. To make the kinds of commitments that are necessary to flourish and multiply. To invest in family. Invest in marriage. Invest in the rearing of children. And whenever the scriptures here speak of building a household, part of that would have been teaching them the promises of salvation from God, teaching them what it meant to be a child of God. But also to invest deeply in the relationships of the church, that the church might grow and multiply and increase We think in a modern world of family and even of church, sadly, as institutions primarily for our pleasure. We marry, have sex, and have children because we think it will satisfy us. And sometimes if it doesn't satisfy us, we are tempted to move on. We look for churches in a similar way. We look for a group of people that will satisfy us. And to be sure, it is God's design that there's pleasure in marriage, there's pleasure in sex, there's pleasure pleasure in Christian fellowship and activities with the church. There's great joy in worship. That's all by the design of God. But from God's point of view in Scripture, The pleasure and the joy is not an end unto itself. The end unto itself is the glory of God and the blessing of the world. The pleasure and the joy within marriage is to be a blessing to the church and to the world. The pleasure and joy within the church is to be a blessing to the world. So we invest deeply in family and in relationships not simply as an end in themselves to satisfy us, but this is part of God's means for blessing the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And this too characterizes an exilic life. Confidence in God's plan doesn't make us so heavenly minded we're no earthly use. Confidence in God's plan for us sets us free to invest deeply without worrying about all the details, knowing that God is advancing his purposes as we do so. So there's confidence in God's plan. There's investment deeply in relationships, in family, and in church for multiplication. And finally, we see here a seeking, a seeking of the welfare of the city. Christians are often and sometimes justly criticized in our country especially for thinking only of themselves, for carving out a community, a pocket, and now even sadly a politics of self-interest that many honest critics of Christianity helpfully point out seems contrary to your own faith, you who are to bless the nation's. But what we see here is that God tells these exiles not simply to think about their own preservation, their own goals, their own family, their own identity, the people of God, but to embrace another reality. He tells them to seek the welfare, the wholeness of their city. And he tells them that with the wholeness and the welfare of the city shall be Your wholeness, your welfare. As those in exile, we recognize and embrace that what God desires to do to care for us in this life is bound together with the people who are around us in community. Therefore, we seek their welfare. What does it mean to seek the wholeness and the welfare of the city in which we live? Well, one, it means to care. As we said, to identify identify with the reality that if the welfare of our neighbors is fragmented, if instead of wholeness there is unraveling, that impacts us as well. So we care deeply about the whole. We care. Secondly, we pray. This is a pattern that we see in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, and he tells him in chapter 2 that in the context of Christian worship, there should be prayer for all kinds of people, for kings and those who are in authority. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, who desires that we would live peaceful, whole, and dignified lives. We don't seek our own self-interest only in prayer, but we pray for our city, for its leaders, for our communities, that we could be whole even as day or whole. And lastly, we do good. There's something called the tragedy of the commons that environmentalists talk about. The idea that people think, well, if I'm the only one littering, it's not going to make a difference. But when there are a billion people with that attitude, it becomes a pretty dirty world. Tragedy of the commons. There can be a similar tragedy when it comes to doing good. Think I'm the only one who's doing any good here. What difference could it make? So as Pastor Gene reminded us, we just walk by. But with 5% or more of Manhattan alone, professing to be Christ followers in a significant way. If 5% of the population of Manhattan did good every day, it would not be a tragedy of the commons. It would be an explosion of well-being for many. We do good to people in our sphere. The Apostle Paul tells the Galatian church, do good to all people, especially those who are in the family of believers. We pray, we care, and we do good. It's this outline of the exilic life. Confidence, investment in relationships, in family, in church, with a view to multiplying and being a blessing, and seeking the welfare, the wholeness of our broader community in the city. This is what we're called to do. We see Jesus doing all of this absolutely perfectly. And we see this coming together, especially at the cross, which this table reminds us of this morning. Jesus had confidence in God's plan. So much confidence that as he anticipated going to this cross, he began to sweat drops like blood because unlike you and me, the way that we know the blessing of God Comes by grace and mercy. But that grace and mercy comes at a cost to Jesus. And He knows it. God's plan for Him was hard. It was burdensome. It was heavy. So that for you, it could be light and joyful. What does Jesus say in those moments with regard to God's plan? Not my will but your will be done. In John's Gospel, when Jesus is going to the cross, he makes a powerful statement about himself. That the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking of the cross, and that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Jesus so invests in the family of God, he invests to the point of death. He invests to the point of bearing judgment. So that through his investment, the whole world could be blessed and brought into a new creation. And when Jesus was on that cross, crucified by his own city, what did he do? Did he speak words of wrath and judgment? Not at all. Hanging on the cross... Jesus sought the very welfare of the people that crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, he lived the perfect, exilic life so that you could be perfect in him by grace. And he invites you to begin 2020 yoked together with him with great joy. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us, and we thank you for what awaits us still. We pray now that you would grant us faith to behold you in a fresh way this year. We pray it in your name. Amen.